Open your Bibles, if you have one with you, to Matthew chapter 4. This is where we're going to begin this morning. I'll go ahead and, and uh, tell you up front, your fingers are going to get some exercise this morning. We've got multiple passages we're going to be in as we sort of unpack this idea that God's Word is sufficient. A little bit of an unusual word, sufficiency. We don't think about it that much. We use a more common English word, enough. They mean essentially the same thing. So what does it mean for God's word to be sufficient? We're going to talk about that this morning. And as we begin, I want you to see this moment in time in the life of Jesus. Actually, we'll look at two scenes from his life by way of introduction this morning where we're going to see what that meant to Jesus, what it meant for God's word to be sufficient, to be enough for him. This first scene happens at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry. So, you know, Matthew chapter 1, Jesus born. Matthew chapter 2, we the Magi come to visit. Matthew chapter 3, Jesus is baptized. And then we get here to 4 where he's going to be tempted. And you'll see that in a minute. What's interesting about his baptism, if you think about the, the, one of the climactic moments of Jesus' life. He's baptized by John. And, and what does he hear? He hears the voice of his father saying, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. And what does he see? He sees the spirit. The text says, like a dove. We don't know if that actually was a dove or if it looked as a dove, but there was some way that the spirit was visibly present with Jesus and landed on him. And so you see this picture of the Trinity, father, son, and spirit together at this incredible moment in time. And then it's the very next verse, something interesting happens, and that's what I want to read to you, Matthew chapter 4, verse 1. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. What? (laughs) The Spirit led him to be tempted? Verse 2, and after he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he then became hungry. One of the greatest understatements in all the Bible right there. And the tempter came and said to him, if you are the son of God, command that these stones become bread. But he answered and said, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Now hold that scene in your mind for a minute. Now flip over to John chapter 4. I want you to see another time in Jesus' life when he was hungry. He and his disciples had been traveling a long way and they stopped by this village and the disciples went in to get food and they were going to bring food back for Jesus and they are going to bring food back for them so they could eat together. And while they're gone, Jesus meets this woman. She's thirsty. She's at the well drawing water and they begin a conversation. And this woman begins to question Jesus and this conversation becomes very personal and Jesus discovers, yes, she's thirsty, but not ultimately for water. She's relationally thirsty. She's been through all these relationships, all these marriages, and she's still thirsty. And he offers himself as the source for her. And that conversation uh, goes in a way that this woman runs back to town to bring others to come and meet this man that she dares to believe might actually be the Messiah. And before those other people come back from the village, the disciples return and they're bringing food. And this is what happens in uh, John 4, 31. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat, right? They know he's hungry. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples were saying to one another, no one brought him anything to eat, did he? 
Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Interesting parallel between Matthew 4 and John 4. Now, what's happening here? Is this like Jesus because of his, you know, you know, he's fully God, fully man. So is this in his fully God self that he doesn't need to eat food? Like he's, he, he just, he, he's not in a sense fully human in that way? No, he was hungry. The text specifically tells us he was hungry. So he felt those same hunger pangs that you and I feel. But what's happening in Jesus' life in these two moments is at least in these two moments of time, he's being sustained by something different. He's essentially saying, although I'm physically hungry, I have something more nourishing than food. And what is that? It's every word that comes out of the mouth of God in Matthew 4. And then in John 4, it's to do the will of the Father. So once I know what he tells me to say through his word, doing that will, obeying that will, living out that will, those two things, that's my food. That's what sustains me. How can this really be? How can the word of God truly be sufficient even in those kinds of contexts? That's what we want to wrestle with this morning. So I'm going to leave those two scenes just sort of hanging in the back of your mind. We're going to come back to them at the end of the message. And I want to shift gears to kind of more theological conception of the sufficiency of the Word of God because when theologians usually talk about this category that God's Word is sufficient, they're usually not talking about you don't need to eat like Jesus was saying. Right? They're talking about a different kind of sufficiency, but I want to see how the two come together and we'll explore that till, uh, at the end. But for now, I, I want to unpack what this word sufficiency means. And I've already mentioned it simply means enough, but that's not enough to just leave it at that because the word enough or sufficient begs enough for what? Sufficient for what? So if you look up the word sufficient or enough in the dictionary, you're going to hear something like this. It'll say that it's enough for a particular purpose. So then you need to know what the purpose is if that word's going to make any sense. So what is the scripture sufficient or enough for? Here's the definition you'll most come across that Bible scholars and theologians have come up with for this idea that the scriptures are sufficient. They'll say it this way. The scriptures contain everything we need for knowledge of salvation and godly living. The scriptures contain everything we need for knowledge of salvation and godly living. Two categories, salvation, godly living. You might say it this way, faith and practice. You might say it this way, coming to Christ, you know, getting new life, and then living out your new life in a way that God designed you to go, God designed you to live. So we want to talk about these two categories, but first, why, why is the sufficiency of Scripture is so important? Why does it matter? Well, there's a couple of reasons. One is historical. When this doctrine was formulated, and, or at least written down, it had always sort of been adhered to, but it was more formally written down was during the Reformation. What was happening in the Reformation? Well, the Protestant church, as it would come to be known over time, was essentially saying the church from Rome, the Catholic church, has over time added to the scripture when it comes to faith and practice. 
So now not only do you need to believe the word of God, but you need to jump through some other religious hoops. You need to do some other things. You need to be living in this kind of way. You need to visit these shrines. You need to pay your indulgences. And all these things had sort of become added to what was necessary for salvation and godly living. Faith and life. And so the reformers helped us refocus, recenter on God's word as sufficient, sufficient for salvation and godly living. Another reason why this is important, some of you were raised in religious environments that maybe they adhered to this word, but they also added a lot of things to it. Maybe you were raised in an environment that said, not only do you need to believe what God teaches in this word, but you need to have some kind of spiritual experience as well. Some kind of extra biblical thing is going to happen to you, maybe when you least expect it. And if your heart and mind are really aligned correctly, then you'll have this spiritual experience and then you'll know that you really are saved. It's not what the Bible teaches. Maybe you were raised in an environment where religion was more like uh, going through these traditious, trad- uh, excuse me, traditional rituals or these religious rituals and you weren't quite sure what they all meant but you just sort of had this fear in you that if you didn't do this and say this and show up there and do this and all those other things that you weren't going to really be okay with God. It's not what Scripture teaches. Scripture teaches what we believe here that the Word of God is sufficient to bring us to full knowledge of salvation and Christian life, faith and practice. So I want you to see uh, three places in Scripture, There's th- this teaching is all over the Bible. This, this idea of sufficiency of Scripture is not just found in three passages, but I want us to look at three passages specifically that are very clear about it. But before we get there, I want to just sort of uh, dispel two myths about the sufficiency of Scripture. There are two things you might think it means that it doesn't mean. Number one, this doctrine doesn't mean that Scripture is the only way that God has revealed Himself to us. Now, theologians would talk about two categories, general revelation and particular revelation or special revelation. And in general revelation, that's nature, creation, the universe. We can learn a lot about God. God reveals himself. Psalm 19 teaches that. Romans 1 teaches that. A number of other places teach us what we can learn from creation about God. This week I was um, skimming through some emails I'd received and I saw this link from some new pictures from the Hubble Space Telescope. And I love looking at those things. And, and this particular one, you know, it, it showed this, this galaxy and you could zoom in and zoom in more and zoom in more. And the more you zoomed in, the more you saw how many stars there were. Just billions and billions of stars in this one tiny little corner of the universe. And that actually stirred my heart. It stirred my heart to awe. It stirred my heart to worship. General revelation is part of the way that God reveals himself. There's also this category I mentioned of special revelation. There's two parts of special revelation, the Bible, Scripture, and Jesus himself. The Bible, this is how I kind of put these three together. Uh, You might say it this way. God has revealed himself generally in nature, specifically in the Bible, and personally in Jesus Christ. And the three all come together. They work together. We don't need to be afraid of what... What, what nature or creation might reveal to us that might contradict the word of God. Nature, scripture, the person of Jesus, they come together, they work together, the full revelation of God through those three things. What the sufficiency of scripture would teach us is that in this book, in and of itself, is sufficient knowledge for salvation and godly living. 
The second thing, so it, it doesn't mean that Scripture is the only way God has revealed himself to us. It also doesn't mean that Scripture tells us everything. There's a lot of mystery about God. There's a lot of mystery about your own life and your emotions and your experiences. We are deep wells, right? And the Bible tells us what we need to know, but maybe not everything we wish we knew. I like the way Kevin DeYoung, he's a pastor and author, he put it this way. To affirm the sufficiency of Scripture is not to suggest that the Bible tells us everything we want to know about everything. But it does tell us everything we need to know about what matters most. So what matters most? Salvation. In other words, learning uh, or, or being saved, being reconciled to God. And then learning to live out your salvation, learning to live the way that God intended you to live as a whole human being. Forgiven and then living in light of your forgiveness. Salvation, and then you might use another theological word, sanctification, becoming more like Jesus, being changed over time. Salvation is instantaneous when you put your faith in Jesus. Sanctification is the rest of your life. So these two theological categories may sound a little dry, salvation, sanctification. I want you to see how rich and alive they are. And you're going to see that in these three scripture passages we'll look at. And not only do I want you to see how rich and alive salvation and sanctification or godly living are as ideas, I want you to see how fully the Scripture is clear about its own sufficiency to bring you to those two things. So we're going to start in Psalms 19. It's actually that same, uh, same psalm that talks about the glory of God being revealed through nature. The heavens declare the glory of God. In verse 1, I want us to look at a different part of this psalm, starting in verse 7. Psalm 19, verse 7, I'll read through verse 10. This is David writing about the Word of God. The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. They are more desirable than gold. Yes, than much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Now, several things to point out. If you have a pen or a pencil and and you're one of those that likes to mark up your Bible, which which I think is a great practice, by the way, I want you to underline a few phrases. In verse 7, underline restoring the soul and making wise the simple. In verse 8, underline rejoicing the heart and then skip down a couple lines, enlightening the eyes. So here's what David's saying about the word of God. If you want your soul restored, go to God's word. If you want to become wise, go to God's word. If you want joy, if you need your heart to begin rejoicing, you'll also find that in God's word. And if you need your eyes enlightened, in other words, if you need to see, if things need to become more clear to you, go to God's word. David uses several different phrases to talk about God's word. He describes it as the law of the Lord, the testimony of the Lord, the precepts of the Lord, the commandment of the Lord, the fear of the Lord, the judgments of the Lord. And then he gets down here to verse 10. They're more desirable than gold. Now, think about gold. That's the most precious material possession that you can have. And this was essentially true in our day, but it was definitely true in the ancient day to possess gold. 
There's nothing more desirable than that, materially speaking. David says, the word of God, greater, more desirable. And then honey. Now, to us, honey comes in that cute little, you know, bear container that you buy in the grocery store, and it's not that big a deal. But back then, man, it didn't get any better than honey. I mean, this was the sweetest things you could put, put in your lips. Honey, pure honey. Sweeter than honey. More desirable than gold. Sufficient to meet your needs. That's what Psalm 19 is declaring. Now, think about this for a minute. David didn't have the whole scripture. In fact, at that time, all he really had was the books of the law, right? The Pentateuch, the first five books, the books of Moses, the Old Testament. That's all he had. And even from that, he's essentially saying it's sufficient. It gives you what you need. All these different categories, restoring your soul, making you wise, rejoicing the heart, enlightening the eyes. It's like better than gold, sweeter than honey. Now turn over to 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy 3. I want to reread the passage we were in last week for those of you that were here. We won't spend long in this passage but I want to hit a, a couple things on it as a way of reminder. Because certainly 2 Timothy 3 speaks to this idea of sufficiency of Scripture incredibly well. Just to remember where we were last week, Paul is writing to Timothy, who's a younger pastor. He's sort of just entrusting him with his knowledge and his wisdom before Paul himself dies. Verse 14 of 2 Timothy 3. You, however, Timothy... Continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the sacred writings. Now here's what the sacred writings are able to do, which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. So there's that category, salvation, and then he keeps going. All scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that, here's the big reason why, the purpose, the man or woman, I would add, of God may be adequate. Remember that word actually could be translated complete. The man or woman of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. In other words, the word of God will make you complete so you can live out your full purpose so that you can lean into the unique thing that God has designed for you. The book of Ephesians tells us that God has planned what he wants you to do ahead of time, before you were even born. He knows the people he wants you to love. He knows the work he wants you to do. He knows the way that he specifically wants you to bring glory to him on this planet, whether it's through your family or your vocation or just a kindness to a stranger or sharing the good news. This is all the work. This is your identity, your purpose, what you've been called to do, what makes you come alive. You'll be complete and equipped for that through God's word. Not only salvation, but also living out your salvation. Right, Your practice, putting your salvation into practice. These two categories, the word of God is sufficient for those two things. One more place I want you to see this. We'll just look at this briefly. Turn over to 2 Peter 1.3. I'd probably just be maybe 10 pages or so to the right in your Bible. 2 Peter 1 verse 3. Now Paul's contemporary Peter, Paul and Peter were leaders in that early church. Peter had followed Jesus for three years, was one of his closest disciples. And this is what Peter has to say, speaking about the Word of God, but also the Spirit of God. So the Spirit and the Word together are what Peter is talking about in verse 3. His divine power, talking about Christ, has granted to us 
everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. If you still have your pen or pencil, underline the the word life and godliness. There are those two categories. He's given everything you need for life, right? Jesus says, I have come so that you may have life and have it abundantly. And it doesn't stop there. Godliness, that's putting that life into action in a way that is pleasing to God for his glory and your own flourishing. There are those two categories again. So you see these three places in Scripture, and there's a lot of other places we could look, that affirm the idea that in this book is everything you need for life and godliness, for salvation and sanctification, for faith and practice. You might say it this way, the Word of God is sufficient, not just to say all that God wanted to say, which is true, but it's also sufficient to meet your deepest needs because your deepest needs are that you become reconciled to God and then you begin to live out that new identity in a way that you are designed and built to live out. Do you know, do you understand that those are your greatest needs? Here's the thing, you will never experience the sufficiency of God's word in that way if you really think in the back of your mind that all this really does is give you information. Now there is a lot of information in here. A lot of doctrine, a lot of theology, a lot of truth. It is all truth. I'll say it that way and we'll talk about that in a couple of weeks. But information is not enough to meet your needs. Now, where am I going with this? Where I'm going with this is not only do you need information, but at a deeper heart level, you need transformation. And that's what this book is sufficient for as well. It takes you to the knowledge, and then beyond the knowledge, beyond the information, there's a transformation that only happens because the Word of God is living and active. I'll read that verse again in a minute in a different context. Um, I want to say this, a lot's been written by sociologists about this information age that we live in. And it is actually remarkable. You know, I, I could pull out my phone right now. I don't have it with me, but I, I, could, I could ask almost any information knowledge question and Google that thing and I, I would have the answer. I mean, almost anything, right? And, and after a while, we'll, we'll be wearing it somehow. And maybe eventually it'll be wired into our brains where like someone will be like, oh, you know who won the Mets game last night? And be like, no, yes, <laughs> I do. <laughs> it just came to me or I saw it in my glasses or it just popped in my head, whatever. We will have all the knowledge that we could possibly have. But here's the thing, information, that kind of knowledge will not change you. It will not transform you. You have to see this book as more than just information about God. It is that yes, but it's so much more. Now I want to get to Hebrews 4.12. You don't need to turn there. I'm just going to touch on it. It's, it's one of our theme verses for this whole series. The Word of God is living and active, right? So much more than just information. Living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, both joints and marrow, able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. Now does that sound scary a little bit, Right? 
piercing, judging the thoughts, not even your thoughts, but your very intentions. Every good work you've ever done, the word of God is able to sort of judge it, not, get, not against just the work itself, but against the reason for the work, your intentions. Were you trying to look good in front of someone else? Were you trying to earn credit with God? <laughs> Were you trying to feel good about yourself, that you can claim that you're a good person? That's how deep this goes. Now, if that scares you a little bit, let me remind you whose hands this scalpel is in. The great surgeon. Right? The, the, the God, there's a sense that God would say, I need to cut you open to do good work inside of you. I, I need to go deep and expose the most sensitive parts of you, the organs where there is sickness, there's disease, there's blackness, there is sin. I need to cut you open. And this is his tool to both cut you open, but then also stitch you up. Give you the transplant. And then bring you back. You see, salvation is the transplant. And then living out, living according to that new organ, that new heart, or that new lungs, or whatever it is, living out that new life that Scripture tells us about. That's the practical living. That's the spiritual life that follows. That's the sanctification. We trust the hands of the surgeon to use this tool, this double-edged sword. God's Word is sufficient to do its deep work in you to confront you with the darkness that is inside, point you toward the Savior, and then bit by bit, transform you to look more like Him. So what? How do we begin to internalize that in a way that shifts our mind about this book from information that may make us vaguely feel guilty to something that's transforming us day by day? In other words, I want to flip the question around. The question, is God's word sufficient for salvation and godly living? The answer is yes, God's word is sufficient. But there's another question. I want to flip that question around and ask you a personal question. Do you really believe that God's word, that what God's word offers is sufficient for you? Do you really believe, do I really believe that the things that this word is sufficient to bring is actually what you need, what you crave? Everyone has something or some things that they desire more than anything else. Everyone has something that they believe, either consciously or unconsciously, that the well-being of their life depends on. Eric read that quote earlier from Tim Keller. This is what he was talking about, the things we give our hearts to. For you this morning, I'd ask this question, what is so deeply embedded into your identity that you would say, as long as I have this, then I'm okay. I can hold things together. My life has meaning. My life has value. Here are some common ones that may sound familiar to you, one or more of these things. A sense of security or safety. Comfort. Achievement or success, maybe in a particular kind of achievement that's very important to you. A certain relationship or maybe the dream 
of a relationship that you don't currently have. The approval of others. You know, some of us just need people to like us, to be okay with us. A close family, a healthy marriage, children who turn out the way we hope. Your physical appearance, good health, friends who know you and care about you, your reputation, your image. All of us have something or some things that deep down, consciously or subconsciously, we believe our life depends on. Now, you may have noticed in that list that I read, every single one of them was good. Nothing sinful about any of those things that I read. They're all good things, but when one of them becomes your ultimate thing, when one of them becomes your heart's desire to the place that you'd say, ultimately, as long as I just have this one thing, my comfort, my family, my relationship, my dream, my security, my success, my reputation, my friends, as long as I just have this one thing, I'm not alone, I'm not whatever, then I'm okay, I'm okay. You know what you're saying at that moment? And I'm not judging you because I'm there with you, but what we're saying at that moment is we're saying there's, there's something that I'm putting my sufficiency in. This is the thing that fills me up. This is my food. This is what really meets my hunger. This is what keeps me from feeling like I'm starving. And, and, and this is where I want to go back to those two moments in Jesus' life, right? Because he had a thing too. He had something for him that was greater than food, just as you do. But, but, but look what, what his thing was. Every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And then knowing and doing the will of my Father. So here's what Jesus was saying. There is something I have more important to me than food, more important to me than my comfort, more important than my reputation, more important to me than anything else. I have something that nourishes and sustains me in a way that physical food or good tastes or good friends could never fill, could never accomplish in my life. Now, how could he say that about simple words on a page? How could he say that about, about a scroll, about a text? He, he, he couldn't if that's all they were. But as we've been talking about thematically in this series, you can't separate the word of God from the presence of God. And it was this intimate relationship with his father, this oneness, this dependence on God that was sustaining him, nourishing him, more important even than feeding his own body that was literally wasting away in the desert. So here's where we need to go as we begin to sort of wrap this up. How do you shift? How do I shift my sufficiency from whatever else those things are, right? Good things that we make ultimate things. How do we shift our sufficiency from those things to the things that can actually bring us sufficiency, the actual things that can sustain us, the actual things that we really need? I think there's two things we've got to understand. Number one, we need to understand what Jesus gave up for us. And two, we need to understand what we receive in exchange what do I mean by that? I, I want to take your mind to the cross for a minute. Jesus is on the cross. He's hanging there. He's about to die. He's about to give up his breath. And, and, and literally what he cries out with one of his last breaths is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That was the moment when he gave up what had always been most precious, most important to him, 
his intimate connection with his father. He gave it up. How long had he enjoyed this intimate, perfect relationship with his father? For eternity, from the beginning of time, since before the beginning of the time, father, son, spirit, trinity, together, perfect fellowship, perfect relationship. He gives that up. Why does he give it up? So you can have it. You've got to understand what Jesus gave up for you and what you receive in return. And they're one and the same thing. Listen to 2 Corinthians 8, 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich relationally with the Father, in the Father's presence, enjoying the Father's presence constantly, intimately, perfectly filling all his needs, although he was rich, for your sake he became poor so that you through his poverty might become poor rich you see the exchange now why do you need to see this again why why do I bring the gospel back to you again why do we do this week after week actually because you have to understand a rich person is actually never hungry and if you are rich you need to start living out of that pot out of that wealth now, I'm, I'm not going to some kind of crazy prosperity gospel here. I want to go in a different direction. I, your wealth is not about things. It's not about material blessings. Your wealth is about the relational riches that you have to be able to talk to God, to be able to know that he's listening to you, to be able to know that you're right with him, that you've been forgiven of your sin, that you don't need to carry around that guilt anymore because it's gone. There is now an openness of communication. There's no more barrier. The veil of the temple has been Rended, it's been ripped open. You're, enter, you're able to enter into that holiest place where God is. Jesus gave that up temporarily so that you could have it for the rest of eternity. Here's the core of the Bible. God's word points you to Jesus, right? We talked about that, the word made flesh. Jesus gave up the most precious thing on earth, this relational intimacy with the Father, so that you and I could have it. So what do we do? We believe that, and then we arrange our lives according to it. We believe it, and we arrange our lives according to it. Salvation, godly living. Now, close with this. I want to imagine a, a poor working man on the edge of poverty, struggling to keep food on the table for his growing family, not sure how he's going to make it month to month. And then he gets to know a wealthy landowner who befriends him. And at one point in time, the landowner says, I have written you into my estate. All that I have is now yours to share. I'm putting no limits on my bank account. Here's my credit card. Here's my line of credit. Go meet your needs. Provide for your family. Now, what does that man have to do in order for that to actually make a difference in his life? Number one, he's got to believe the wealthy man. He's got to accept that the word of this man is sufficient to actually give him what he promised. And number two, he needs to start living according to his new reality, according to his wealth. In other words... He needs to go home and tell his wife, it's time to move. We're leaving the shack. We're going to the estate. God's word is sufficient. Sufficient to give you new life. 
and sufficient to show you how to live according to the new life that is yours. The exchange happens instantaneously the first time you put your trust in Jesus Christ to do for you what you could not do for yourself. But this other piece, this is the rest of our lives of figuring out how we learn to live as relationally wealthy people, relationally wealthy with God the Father, who is the relationship that ultimately matters, the relationship that fills us, the relationship that even the best human relationship in your life is just a shadow pointing toward. Here's how we want to close our service today. I'm going to invite Tim and the band to come back up here. Even while I'm talking, you guys can go ahead and make your way up on the stage. And what we wanted to do is we wanted to provide some space and some time for you all just to reflect. You know, sometimes after the message, we sing a song, which is a great way to respond to hearing God's word. This time, we're we're actually not going to invite you to sing. We're just going to invite you to listen. We're going to invite you to hear. We're going to invite you just to sort of let the words of this song wash over you. And this is an opportunity for some of you to, to, to sort of do some business with God. You know, it could be for you, you've never gotten to the place in your life where you've realized, oh, that's what God's offering me through Jesus Christ. I'm going to put my trust in that. I'm going to have the faith to believe that. For others of you, you've done that a long time ago, but, but you, you keep going back to these other things that you think your sufficiency can be found in. And what God's word is telling you, you you won't find them there, but there is a place to find them in the relationship with your father through Jesus Christ made possible through his word. So I've asked Tim to just share a little bit about this song and and how we can kind of live into these few moments as the spirit does his work even now in our hearts.